Hey, everyone, we're in conversation with the one, the only Dr. Maya Kritza. She, she is an associate professor of management and organization at Warwick Business School at obviously the University of Warwick. Maya's research focuses on understanding complex and rarely seen organizational settings, particularly at the top of org hierarchies and where public interest is involved. Maya's on the Thinkers 50 radar. Woohoo! She specializes in corporate governance, accountability, and responsibility, as well as executive management and leadership and practice. Uh, I would say we've been friends for way too long because you and I get into all kinds of trouble, Maya. Great to have you here today. Thank you for this. I don't even know where to start with you, but I'm going to throw something at you, if you don't mind, because I think you've your research and, and how you also are public about this on places like LinkedIn, Twitter, your obviously your, your research and your papers. Leaders as facilitators. Tell me a bit when I say that term, what comes to mind, what's working, what's not, and, and let's let's go with that. So leaders as facilitators. So for me, what I what I talk a lot about is um, and what that resonates with me. And thank you, Dan, for having me, by the way. It's lovely to see you. And we do get into some trouble, but let's keep that <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, I think leaders as facilitators really is uh, is part of some mostly some of what I've been teaching, but also some research that I've been doing, which is really about a broader shift that I think organizations are experiencing. And the pandemic is just the sort of latest icing on the cake with this, which is really moving toward, um, you know, what I called the fluid now, but others have talked about VUCA and others. Yeah, yeah. And it's really kind of existing in this environment in which the kind of old certainties, including the old certainties regarding what managers or leaders are meant to do, are really crumbling because the world around us is, um, you know, to borrow from Zygmunt Bauman, is becoming more and more liquid. There's fewer stable institutions. There are more cracks to pepper over. There are more instabilities. Organizational boundaries are more fluid. Contracts are more fluid. Social contracts are more fluid. Certainties are less and less, and so are stabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think in that space, one of the stabilities that has cracked but yet lingers on is this notion that leaders are there to kind of proclaim, leaders are there there to structure, leaders are there to kind of um, vision and guide. And I think actually my personal view is I, I talk about facilitators or crafters, so crafters mm. or environments. I think the role of leaders, particularly today, and particularly when it comes to better work, which is one of the things I'm passionate about, is really about creating environments and crafting environments, which are what my colleague Gianpietro Petrirelli would call is a kind of holding environment. So environments that are supportive of better work um, in a way that is inclusive in a way that is structurally supportive in a way that doesn't forget about things like rewards doesn't forget about things like meaningful structures and um, enabled work mm -hmm. so I think for me leaders as facilitators it's really about it's less about this idea of proclamation I, I, I this idea of charismatic leaders for me is entirely irrelevant as far as I'm concerned leadership is a task and in fact, it's a duty, it's a moral duty if you take it seriously with a grave responsibility. And I think the responsibility is always to the other. So what can you do to create better conditions in which others can thrive? And for me, a successful leader is a person who's dedicated to that and who does that over and above any kind of appearance, any kind of nice chat and talk. You know, talk is cheap. I think creating those environments is very intricate and much more important. 
Well, I love you brought up the word duty because I have often said uh, a leader has a duty of care uh, in order to serve the people in which that together are working together, uh, ultimately for the final result or the goal or what have you. But there's something getting in the way clearly of better work, or maybe there's a few inhibitors or uh, you know ditches in the field. So, so what do you see as kind of the top incumbents or uh, impediments? I'm sorry on on what's getting in the way of ultimately this better work. Oh God, where do, where do we start? I think. How much time do we have? Uh, yes. Yeah, how much time do we have for these? I mean, the, there's all sorts of things happening here. I, I think. Uh, so I think the critical one is. The, so I'll talk about two because I think those two things are rarely discussed. I think the easy so the easy conversations are around policies. The easy conversations are around kind of invest screenings like that I think those tend to be a distraction I think actually fundamentally it's two things I think firstly is the question of who are the leaders themselves and to what extent are they encouraged to be reflective hmm. and uh, about their own assumptions and then open to change that fundamentally basically puts at the center other people rather than their own comfort so I think leaders are a part of a huge, huge stumbling block to uh, to change. And I'll give just one example of something that I think is emblematic to this. Um, Jamie Dimon, <laughs> sometime last year, I know you knew this was coming, I right? Talk, talk to, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. He's a gift that keeps on giving. Um, working from home doesn't work for people who want to hustle. And so, I mean, it's particularly notable that a person who is um, who got to the top by abiding by the rules of a game, which fundamentally center hustle mm -hmm. um, and idealize hustle, is basically telling everybody else that a major mechanism for uh, better workplaces for many. So, for instance, I'll just quote one Sydney Dupre, who might know, uh, who's at Yale School of Management, yeah. has massively talked about, you know, working and remote work being um, a key component of anti-racism, for instance. So the very notion that, for instance, office work works for most people yeah. is premised on a very limited idea of an ideal worker, which many senior leaders epitomize themselves. And, you know, they're not very diverse as a result, and there's all sorts of issues there. So I think there is a kind of co-optation and, an, and a, and a power-enabled unwillingness to reflect and to change um, that I think is centering a lot of it. Basically, the story goes, I was successful, I made it, why can't you just work harder like I did, and then you'll get to exactly where you are. So there's a sort of social rep reproduction mechanism happening as well. And I think secondly, what's standing in the way of better work is actually a shift over the last 30, 40 years, particularly prominent in places like the US and UK, but also prominent in Japan and South Korea and other places, which is the kind of institution of work. And in particular, the institution of hustle, the institution of passion, the institution of dedication, the institution of work as the primary mechanism and site for meaning in life. Mm. And I think this centrality of work, um, which is expressed in workaholism, but also in notion, you know, presence of presenteeism, for instance, a presence of emphasis on visibility rather than outputs, I think creates a wider set of environmental uh, constraints to any kind of notions of change. So that, for instance, my colleague, uh, Hee-jun Chung, who's um, at University of Kent, a sociologist, just published a book, wonderful 
called the flexibility paradox. And part of what she talks about is that flexibility policies in and of itself, which have been suggested as a mechanism of better work, are insufficient, partly because flexible policies and flexible working happens within wider structures of biases, including gender biases, so who works flexibly, when they do flexibly, do we presume, for instance, that women are going to be engaged in other work, because this is how we see women who are working from home, versus, you know, men working behind closed doors and set offices at home. There's also wider presumptions about what it means to be a dedicated worker and who is an ideal worker. So I think, unfortunately, what's standing in the way of better work is senior leaders, individual biases which are further propagated by wider trends in society and wider biases in society and which are holding us back and I think those are holding us back against any rational evidence that we have and to point I'll just mention one thing there's a wonderful example of Best Buy starting in the early 2000s you may have seen this uh, example and they 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 instituted Roe results only working environment, right? Wonderful success. The basic premise being, look, we'll support you. Again, leaders as crafters, leaders as facilitators, we'll create those holding environments that are enabling you to just focus on the results. We won't just tell you, go on and figure it out. We'll facilitate, we'll train, um, and that will lead to productivity. And it did. Yeah. It did. It led to better trust. It led to better productivity. And then, of course, a new CEO came along, who, by the way, is now prominently you know, glorified as a leader yeah. um, and um, cancelled it on based on no evidence and based solely as a signal to the market that basically, you know, results only working environment was not sending the right signal, which is we're going to shake things up and people are going to come back at work and be visible and be productive. So I think that's what's really standing in, in the way. And those are huge, huge barriers. So let's tackle a little bit deeper onto points one and two then. First on the, on the leaders bit and, yeah. and, and wonderful observation, is this what, what, what causes that? Is it that leaders see themselves as having to follow what came before them? So it's a bit, a bit like the champs monkey see monkey do, if you will. Is it, oh, I, I want to climb the ladder. So if that's how I have to play the game, then I better play the game in a way that is humane or inhumane, I should say, in a way in which that really is almost deleterious to the, to the ego and to the id and to the soul of the employee. Like, what, what do you see in some of your research and conversations and, and almost interventions in this world of what, why leaders are acting this way or why they change? Because in, in my opinion, Maya, I don't think necessarily that it's uh, an, an innate thing. I, I think it's learned. And so if they're learning it, why are they learning it and not doing it in a way that you and I see as a better, more humane way? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things there. I, th I think um, there's a, there's... I think some of it is just mere fundamental basics of humanity. So for instance, one of the things we know is the mere exposure, for instance, effect means that the more we spend time together actually seeing each other, and which normally means co-present in, in a single space, yeah. physical space, that means the more that we like each other. And so the more we're willing to spend time with each other, the more we're willing to kind of engage with each other, see each other more and more positively. And that means that, you know, where, for instance, you're thinking about, oh, who, would I, who do I make this, uh, this new opportunity available to? Well, I immediately go to Dan because I've seen him around. He seems like a sharp young man, wonderful stuff. He's dedicated like I am. 
And so off we go. So I think there's a, a part of it is driven by just biases that we have, mm-hmm. biases that basically prejudice us toward people who are visible, toward people who spend time with us, toward people who make us feel good. Um, and part of it is also things like fundamental attribution error. So because we understand our own contexts, we are more willing to attribute, for instance, you know, we're real world limitations to the fact that we can be 100% productive in a particular space. But with other people, we don't see their context. So we tend to attribute their failings to personal failings. And I think, and this is where I get to think my own experience, having shadowed some CEOs as well, very closely, um, and been in boards and observed boards, I think by very nature and structurally, these are separate places. Where, where CEOs and senior leaders live and where they work are separate places. Yeah. And in fact, sociologically, as you climb, you are more and more and more and more removed, often physically. So C-suite offices, different floors. I mean, in the case of Boeing, a different city right? They moved to Chicago, the HQ, to be away from the engineers in Seattle. So you are more and more and more removed from the rest in the organization. And so structurally, things like the fundamental attribution error kick in, but also you are receiving more and more symbols that you are a special kind of a person Mm -hmm. and that you are fundamentally different from these other people who could have hustled like you did, but clearly because of a personal failing, fundamental attribution error, have not. And so the lesson I think for many for many individual leaders becomes, I did very well. I worked very, very hard. I deserve to get where I'm at. And I'm a unique kind of a person who's motivated by these things. And everybody else is shirking, partly because I can't see them, partly because they're simply different than me. And so I think these are, you know, this doesn't have to be sort of an evil CEO kind of a trope at the top who's like being a horrible human being. These are mere sociological facts of existence. Yeah. I think just the way in which senior leaders have increasingly isolated themselves from the rest of their organizations is facilitating this kind of distance and is fundamentally supporting distrust. And I think that distrust is embedded, it's corrosive, and it basically presents the, the foundation of you know, the working contract between firms and senior leaders for the last 20, 30 years. Sprinkle in a little Dunning-Kruger and you got yourself a, a hot mess. But what I also noticed is that it segues nicely. Can I even say that in this case? It segues nicely into your second point, which is ultimately the centrality of work. If you, so if the leader is then looking at the up and coming leader, let's say, or even the team member and saying, well, if your life isn't centered around work, well, shame on you. You don't have the hustle. You know, what is your purpose? Shouldn't it be work? And if that's not the case, then I'm not going to view you as worthy of promotion or of the plum assignments or what have you. So do you see a a sad, I guess, alignment between your two uh, big, big kahunas there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just, interestingly, I was just talking to my students about this just yesterday, my full-time MBA students at Warwick, we were talking about various institutions mm. um, in the world of work. And, and one of those is exactly that. And you've mentioned several, the idea of passion, the idea of hustle, the idea of work. And these are things that, again, senior leaders have 
learned on their own experience and therefore have been normalized into. And I think what's really dangerous is, you know, when I mentioned to Jamie Dimon, another in the same article that I was reading, another senior VP at Goldman, another progressive company, highly inclusive, um, said young bankers have been observing uh, learn by observing older ones. And this is the critical uh, glue, if you would, that holds cultures together. And it's the reason why people need to go back to the office. And I think what's very interesting about that is, of course, younger bankers learn from older bankers. Yes, but what are they learning? And I think the critical question there is they are learning norms of an industry that has embedded overwork and entirely normalized it. I mean, who cares if you have a paid taxi or if Saturdays are formally off right. in an industry that expects 90 plus hours, you're just going to be working on a Sunday until 3 a.m. Yeah. You know, so I think I think these things are and this is why I say, you know, we have a long track record ever since, unfortunately, the young uh, Bank of America intern died, partly attributed to overwork. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was five, six years ago now. Ever since then, there's been a lot of conversations in these industries. Law is another one, but there's others um, which are fundamentally driven by this idea of passion and co-opting passion. Um, there's a wonderful term that a number of social psychologists have termed, which is called passion exploitation, I quite like. Mm. Um, but really what they have done is that they've said, you know, we will intervene with these policies and they will somehow help. So, you know, no working on Saturday, no, no, you know, taxis to get you home none of it matters if you're working and 90 hours a week is what you do at work and 90 hours a week you're getting signals from senior bankers that this is normal mm -hmm. and those same senior bankers don't have really lives outside of work and you're spending 90 hours at work therefore your connection with any other part of your identity isn't allowed to bloom because you're simply not seeing anybody else you're not making time to see your friends you're not making time to see your parents have a loved one take care of anybody and so this becomes very much a self-reinforcing mechanism I think unfortunately and so you're right it's it's part of a wider social reproduction in which people who have learned to overwork are passing on those norms to others but this is critical and this is why it's an institution rationalized as this is what good works, good work looks like, or this is what is needed in finance. Now, as somebody pointed out the other day, I think it was Andrew Woodward, um, is it Woodward? The former economist, um, yeah. columnist. Yeah. Um, he was pointing out that, you know, during the pandemic, finance companies were posting record profits. They were all working from home. And yet, the story goes, we need to learn from each other. We need to collaborate. This is where new ideas spark. So a lot of this is, I think, mythical institution that is not necessarily questioned. And part of the reason why it's not questioned is, you know, there's a lot of young people who want to be successful um, in a world where there's not that many options anymore for secure and, and uh, decent employment. Um, and so if this is the social contract that they have to sign, some of them are thinking, well, that's it. And I think senior leaders know that. And I think this is where the passion exploitation kicks in because they can say, you know, there's resistance, but they need to get over it, which is what Jamie Dimon said. Oh, it just uh, irks me to no end, which I was thinking about you and your research. And again, how you are quite uh, vociferous in the, um, I guess, the delineation between inputs and outputs and where the focus mm -hmm. ought to be 
for leaders who care, for that duty of care, for leaders as facilitators. So tell us a bit about that, um, the dichotomy, I guess, between where leaders spend their time in focusing on the output or the outcomes versus the inputs and, and what your thoughts are, and maybe how they align again back to the two major points you've made. Yeah, I think, to be honest, I, th- I think there's, which is quite paradoxical, right? Because mm. a lot of, you would think that organizations are very rational entities, therefore that really, what really matters most of all is productivity and, and performance and mm. outputs. And you have copious amounts of evidence that really, in many ways, organizations are social entities. They're there to make us feel good. They're there to reproduce. They're there to categorize us. They're there to make us distinct in some ways, hierarchically or elsewhere, um, or in other uh, another way. So I think in terms of leaders as facilitators and what that requires, something that I talk to my students a lot, my exec MBA students a lot in the module that I run on leading and managing change is... You know, I think if you want people to move, you need to give them clear goals. I think you need to, and hopefully those goals are within capability. Um, and that is part of a conversation, therefore. It's not something you just, you know, throw on the wall. Um, and it's a sort of stretch goals that that is impossible. So these are negotiated and agreed type of interventions. I think you need to provide an environment that reinforces that. So if you want people to give a lot of discretionary effort for something, you better think about how you're rewarding that rather Mm -hmm. than necessarily rewarding something else and then continuing to believe that they just do this on top of everything else that they're doing. I think you need to be thinking about, you know, really informal support. Organizations are, as we talked about, increasingly places where most of us spend most of our time and get most of our feedback and most of our validation and most of our identity comes from that. And so I think actually a huge part of the role of leaders, and that's that facilitators bit, is literally the simple work of how you doing? How are you doing? Anything I can do. And, and I think this is such basic management, but it gets so lost because there's this fetishization of leaders, as I said, as people who are visionary, people who have proclamations, people who have large scale strategies, people who have visions. And actually what we forget, partly because, you know, we focus on those outputs and we don't think about the environments that are going to enable certain outputs is we forget that an environment that really is necessary is an environment of decent work and respect. And that also includes care. And I know you know about this, but, you know, the simple question of checking in every so often, randomly, not on a schedule, with somebody on a basis of psychological safety and trust is so powerful because sometimes people just need to be told you're doing a good job. Right. That's it. I mean, we're very simple. We're very, very simple beings. So I think to that point of, you know, what leaders should focus more on, I think they should focus on outputs. I think they should focus less on things like presenteeism, less on things like visibility, Mm -hmm. less on fake demonstrations of passion and dedication. I think this idea that work should, you know, be your life should matter less. If we can achieve our goals, if we can achieve them in spaces that work for our lives, in realization that each one of us has a different intersectionally kind of complex way of being in the world that limits us, if people enable those environments and if they also show care in a human way, people are capable of amazing things. 
amazing things. But I think, again, it's not simply enough to say, I trust you um, and, you know, go off and achieve this. You need to support them in doing that structurally and informally. And I think those two things are rarely in combination, <laughs> rarely in combination, because one requires money and the other requires time. Yeah. And also requires the capability to see things from the perspective of people you are supporting. And I don't think that's necessarily something that we teach um, or encourage leaders to do very well. One thing, maybe the last question while I've got you, and that is the you, you've and I, I completely agree. You've been known to sort of take on celebrity leaders, I might call them, whether it's Dimon or others, Bezos for you know some of their antics and so are we stuck i guess the question is maya are we stuck in a world where many of these up-and-coming leaders are looking to the celebrity leader for inspiration hope i guess perhaps the blueprint on how to be and if so how do we ameliorate that sort of thinking and, and what can we do to expunge the idea that these uh, at times, maniacal leaders are actually the blueprint of a caring type of individual. God. So <laughs> interesting that you asked me that because, no, no, interesting that you asked me that because actually my, my, just this morning I was working on editing just before a submission, a paper that we have, which literally is titled Celebrity Entrepreneurs as Predators. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're, you're speaking, you're speaking to the person. Uh, no. And I, I think in that, what we try to develop is exactly some of the points that you were developing, which is that the media, particularly the business media has a, had a powerful, what the literature calls ideational role in effectively constructing these notions of who entrepreneurs are and, you know, centralizing really uh, traditional sort of gender based also kind of masculine macho type of aggressive uh, visions of who these men are and most continue to be men, certainly celebrity entrepreneurs. But also what's really, really interesting is the very label of entrepreneurship gives them a very distinct positive association. And. So I think what's happening and very interestingly is that there is a wider kind of setting in which basically these individuals are who have a very strong and we develop a typology of various predatory. We define, we define predation as basically benefiting at the expense of another. And these then scale up to, because we get into biology, it gets really complicated, but we're yeah. developing various kind of papers off of it. Um, biologists are super cool especially yeah. those studying lions and hyenas, which is who we talk okay. about. Okay, totally um, good Yeah, yeah, no, it's great, it's, it's coming. But no, but what's really interesting about it is these individuals are basically benefiting on the back of positive social associations, which we have with the word entrepreneur, which partly justify things like aggression, things like poaching, things like uh, basically, uh, um, things like, so for instance, taking public kind of money and then paying no taxes things like aggressively using your size to basically shut down smaller competitors which is what happened for instance with bezos and diapers.com but yeah. all of this gets explained away as basically being a part of what it means to be an entrepreneur a successful entrepreneur and of course because these people have great success and by the way their success is not because they're individual geniuses with great ideas which is how we traditionally positively 
negatively view entrepreneurs. But what we try to show is that in many ways, their actual financial success is based on predatory activity over the years in various ways towards staff, towards public money, toward ideas, toward uh, you know, founders and others. And the danger there is, is that one, we begin to equate good ideas um, as a kind of socially positive association with entrepreneurship and we continue to use that to justify away all of these problematic actions and then the secondary effect of that is that other people my students younger people are looking to those tropes and saying this is not what it means to be an entrepreneur that category has been filled with highly problematic practices masked over with this idea of positive association emotively and it's really, uh, really challenging for me. And I spent a lot of my time. And in fact, yesterday in, in class, uh, somebody also mentioned Elon Musk. And it's very, very telling how difficult it is to have any kind of challenging conversations about these individuals that doesn't, that doesn't either devolve into accusations of jealousy. Mm-hmm. So they're highly successful, therefore, um, or basically misunderstanding. So, you know, they're, they're visionaries. And I think it's particularly telling and it's part of a cult of leadership or leaderism as Gianpetro Petrieri calls it, that we are justifying away a lot, a lot of morally dubious action for people simply because they appear to be successful. And what we're entirely denying is the structural actions, the gamemanship, the very problematic business practices that have underpinned a lot of that success, alongside a wider combination of who these individuals are, their structural privileges, and et cetera, et cetera. And I think what it does is represents, as you were rightly saying, a very uncaring, a very non-progressive, a very mythological ideal entrepreneur ideal, which is based on very, very, very faulty understanding, particularly at at a a moment where the world is fundamentally unequal and where the last two years have basically just brought further enrichment to people who already have a lot of it. Um, I, I think we should be willing to look more realistically at the baseline for success and also to challenge each other on, on what basis we're drawing inferences and who are we holding up. So who are we giving pedestals to and for what reason? And the thing is, you know, so yesterday I was talking to my students about WeWork and Adam Newman. That was our case study that we were oh, yeah. analyzing. And one of them said, well, you know, I still at the end of it, I still I still like Adam. And before that, we were talking about Carlos Ghosn and, and, you know, Nissan. And they were saying, well, I I still like Carlos Ghosn. And the thing is, you know, that's fine. I don't challenge that. I I don't challenge the idea that we can have an emotive connection to some of these leaders. We can find them charming. We can find them, you know, charismatic. And that's wonderful. But I care about that. For me, leadership is the action. It's not the pomp. And I think if we are continually focusing on the stories and the narratives that make these elites look good, I think we're really fundamentally poisoning the pool. And we're also teaching future generations things that I think are really, really detrimental to basically our world. So on that happy note. (laughs) Well, I love getting into trouble with you. We must do this again. But to prove that I care, I know you must leave so you can pick up your wee one from from daycare. Dr. Maya, where where might we find more of you for those that are just getting introduced into your wonderful brain and work? 
Oh, thank you very much. Um, I think Twitter is probably the best um, at a doctor and then K-O-R-I-C-A. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm always happy uh, to sort of wax polemical there and get into sort of all sorts of debates, uh, as you know. Uh, but yeah, I think, again, wonderful to have these conversations to open up some space for difference and more critical thinking uh, about some of these really important issues. So I really appreciate you giving me this space to share. Well, you're, you're invited anytime. This is wonderful. I, I love one of your adages, let your life speak. And so with that, we'll call it a day until the next time. Dr. Maya Koritsa of Warwick Business School. Lovely to have you, Maya, and look forward to the next one. Have a great one. Thank you.